The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 33, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I'll stop right there and I'll say that shows us that it is something known as creation ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God spoke and he created. We don't believe in creation ex morphine hulis, which means of already existing matter. We don't hold to ex deo, which means out of God. That means it, the pantheistic worldview would be that God created out of himself, and so everything is God. We don't believe in that, okay? Ex morphine hulis means they created out of pre-existing matter, which means that matter always existed. That's a logical contradiction. It cannot happen because you would never be going forward in time. You'd always be going backward in time, looking for the beginning of what exists. Okay, so that right there shows us that he created out of nothing, out of ex nihilo, and he is sustaining all things, even at this point in time. That's um, 1 Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. And Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's verse 1 or maybe 2, where it says that he is not only the creator out of nothing, but he is the sustainer of all things. Okay, so he spoke and it was done. Now let me find where we are. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the sons of men from the place of his dwelling. He looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our hearts shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Okay, we are in Leviticus chapter 27. If you've checked your Bible, you'll know that that is the last chapter of the book of Leviticus. I will say this before I start reading the verses today. It's a long chapter. There's a ton of information. 
There's not a lot of Christological information in it. It is a wonderful passage, though. If you pay attention, you'll have a lot of information that you can later apply when talking to people about particular issues. When they say, well, that look at what it says there, and they diminish it, don't allow that into your theology. You can say, this is all here for a reason, and it all makes complete sense. Verse 1 of chapter 27, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when a man consecrates by vow certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. People will argue over this as if it's somehow bad. I will explain why it's not, okay? Verse uh, 5, and if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed, the priest shall value him. If it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. If it is an unclean animal which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it so it shall be. But if he wants it all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicated wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, then it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought to the one who owned the land as a possession, and all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 garas to the shekel. But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate. Whether it is an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it. 
Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. That was a long Monday for me. I got to tell you what, that was one of two times that I've sat in the chair typing, didn't get up all day, and when Hedigo got home, she served me dinner at the desk while I continued to type until late at night because it's a lot of information. I wanted to get it done in one sermon because it all is one unified whole, and I have to tell you, there are, there are some very, very, very difficult verses in this passage which we're going to talk about, all right? One of my friends takes a different stand on vows than I do. There's actually no real information on making oaths and vows in the New Testament epistles. Christians are supposed to say what they mean and mean what they say. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 7, But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. This was telling Israel that they were not to swear but to be people of integrity in what they said. This is essentially repeated by Paul for those in the church. James repeats it in his epistle as well. However, this really has nothing to do with making oaths or vows. The Old Testament explicitly speaks of making vows such as in our passage today. As the New Testament doesn't explicitly deal with either oaths or vows, we must use common sense in how we deal with them. In an oath or a vow to another person, we are committing to perform based on our words and in our circumstance of being Christians. Their perception of our integrity and our allegiance to Jesus Christ is at stake. If we make such a vow, we are to perform it. Secondly, in making a vow, we are doing so in the name of the Lord. To do so in any other name or capacity, such as I vow on my mother's grave, something you hear all the time, is idolatry. It's placing the mother's grave above God. Because we are vowing in the name of the Lord, we are expected to perform what we say. Having said this, if we made a vow which is contrary to our life in Christ before coming to Christ, it cannot be something we are expected to perform. First, it is contrary to our commitment to Christ. It is not to be done. Secondly, we were in a completely different state before we came to Christ. If we made a vow which was inappropriate, the sin of that vow is forgiven in him. However, not all vows are abrogated in coming to Christ. A vow of marriage between a man and a woman must stand. It is legal. It is appropriate under the new covenant, and therefore we are bound to it. If a guy, however, made a vow of marriage to another guy, perished the thought, before coming to Christ, that vow cannot stand. It is illegitimate in the eyes of the Lord, and it must be ended in a legal fashion in the society in which we live. 
In other words, common sense needs to be used when considering vows which we made before coming to Christ. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy chapter 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall perform and keep it. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. I think probably my friend and I would agree on the issue of vows up to this point. However, he mentioned to me one time, what if someone made a stupid vow never to drink Coke again? Would that be binding? I would say yes. If you have vowed to the Lord that you will do or not do something, then it is binding. He says that's putting us back under the law. I say it is submitting to our vow to the Lord. At what point is our word to be taken as anything less than what we speak? If our yes is to be yes and our no is to be no, even apart from vows, then how much more should our vows be held as sacred? Understanding this, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Now all things are of God, who has, past tense, reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses, meaning their sins, to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. If this is so, If sin is not being imputed to us, then one's logic might be, I cannot be sinning if I break my stupid vow of not drinking Coke again. In this, there is the assumption that the non-imputation of sin means that one is not doing wrong. That is a category mistake. One may not be imputed sin, but one can still do wrong. The non-imputation of sin means that we will not die. The wages of sin, after all, is death. Thank you. What this means is that we will never again lose our salvation because we are not imputed sin for our wrongdoing, and thus we will not die. Speaking of spiritual death, we have been, past tense, granted eternal life, and that will not change. Sin is no longer imputed, but wrongdoing is still reckoned. This is what then falls under the category of rewards and loss. We will all stand before the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ and receive our judgment for deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. To vow a stupid vow which one will break because it is stupid is wrongdoing. To vow a vow which will lead to one doing wrong is to commit wrongdoing. Either way, wrong has been done. The sanctity of keeping vows is found in the books of wisdom, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. These cannot be regulated to merely a part of the Old Covenant. The books of wisdom speak of that which is right on a basic level. They speak of that which is fundamentally right apart from the law itself. Let us be wise and circumspect both in making oaths and in vows and in performing them. In the end, sin will not be imputed to you for your failure to perform your vows, but you will be held accountable for failing to perform them nonetheless. Understanding this, it's time that we get into our verses of this passage before us. It has been a wonderful trip through this book, and we're almost at its end as we begin chapter 27. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. 
I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is that which is vowed. It's verses 1 through 27. Verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the words here indicate that an entirely new section of instruction from the Lord lies ahead. It is the standard phrase to indicate this. And so these words are to be taken as a completely separate section within the book. Before closing out this marvelous book called Leviticus, the Lord has one more item to be included in it. And without this chapter, there would be a lack in the book's content. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the word appendix is used by many scholars to describe the contents of this chapter. This is for a few reasons. First, the final words of chapter 26 appear to close out the statutes and the judgments and the laws which were made between the Lord and the children of Israel at Sinai. Secondly, it is because this chapter deals with vows, and vows are a free will expression by an individual who is under no obligation to make the vow in the first place. That was our text verse, if you saw that. Thus they lay outside of the law. Although this is true, calling this chapter an appendix is not the best way to look at it, according to Charlie Garrett. First, neder, or vows, are referred to five times in the book of Leviticus. These are given in conjunction with the details of other temple sacrifices. The legal acknowledgement of these vows within the sacrificial laws thus requires the commands concerning them be carefully laid out. Secondly, the verses end acknowledging that the chapter details commandments given by the Lord while still at Mount Sinai. Thus, this is not an appendix. The reason for placing it last in Leviticus, pay attention to this one verse and you'll get the reason why he's doing it, is because, or verse, this one sentence, is because it deals with voluntary offerings. Though not mandatory to be made, once made, they become mandatory in keeping them. Therefore, they are a part of the law. There would be a void without including these directions. As the Lord's word was considered inviolable, so the words of the people were to be considered as well. The spoken word from the man resulted in a command from the Lord. Does everybody see that? You don't have to vow, but once you do, the Lord now commands you. It is a part of the law, and it is not an appendix. A command from the Lord became something that was to be obeyed. This is referred to later in Deuteronomy 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. I read this already. I'm reading it again so you can see it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Solomon, in both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, speaks of the importance of keeping one's vows. From Ecclesiastes 5, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Verse 2 continues, when a man consecrates by a vow. Here the verb pala, or wonder, is translated as consecrates. It doesn't seem to make any sense. The idea is, though, that a wonder or a miracle is something out of the normal. So a vow is something out of the normal. It is above and beyond what is considered regular. Even today, when somebody does something above and beyond, we proclaim, well, isn't that wonderful? This carries the idea of what is being conveyed right here. Verse 2 continues, Certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation. 
There is a debate as to whether the vows concerning people were intended to mean that these people became the property of the Lord unless redeemed, or if the purpose of making a vow was to redeem the person based on the evaluation. The scholar Kyle says this implies clearly enough that whenever a person was vowed, redemption was to follow according to the valuation. Otherwise, what was the object of valuing them? In other words, he's saying that when a person makes a vow concerning another person, I'm vowing this person to the Lord, that it was assumed that they were going to redeem that person. That is what he is arguing. Valuation supposes either redemption or purchase. If that is the case, then why vow someone to the Lord? If the purpose is to redeem, then why vow at all? Why not just give the money to the priests? Secondly, the vowing of animals and land will be mentioned next, and they too could be redeemed, but it was not the expectation that they would be. What seems to be the case is that when a vow is made to consecrate a person to the Lord, that person belonged to the Lord permanently. Unless redeemed, they would be devoted to the service of the sanctuary for the duration of their lives. This happened to somebody in the Bible. Does anybody know who it is? Samuel the prophet. Oh, Lord, I don't have a child. I want to have a child. I will give you my child if you will take away my disgrace. And she vowed her child to the Lord, and he was the Lord's forever. We might ask, why would someone do this? Well, we just had one instance right there. But we do it in our own society, even with different means. The intent would be the same. We give our children up for adoption in hopes of them or us having better lives. I'm very grateful that people do that because I adopted two children. We give up children for adoption in hopes of them having that better life. We give ourselves up to employers, even signing work contracts in order to secure a more positive future. Someone at the sanctuary would be under the care of the sanctuary. This practice may explain the term Nethanim, which is used in Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah to describe a class of people who served at the temple, but who were of a lower class than those of the Levites. Nethanim comes from the verb Natan, meaning to give, and thus they may be people given over to the temple service, whether those of foreign birth as slaves or those of Israel who are consecrated by vow. The purpose of valuation then would be to redeem a person who was devoted to the Lord if their future looked brighter outside of the temple. If this was the case, then they could be redeemed to live out their lives as the Lord had prospered them apart from temple service. Again, this is conjecture, but it makes logical sense. Verse 3, just imagine now, it's probably 745 on Monday morning, and my head is already hurting trying to evaluate that one verse right there. It's very complicated, and I don't want to give you something that I don't understand completely and haven't thoroughly researched. Verse 3, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The valuations of the people to follow are based on ability to serve and skill in service, not on intrinsic value of the person. Serving the Lord is what is being valued. In the case of a man between 20 and 60, they are in the prime of life, and the expected service would be considerable. To redeem them would require a large amount, 50 shekels. It is silver which is specified, and throughout Scripture, redemption is pictured in silver. Verse 4, if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. Again, Ability to serve, not intrinsic value of the person is being seen here. 
Peter calls women the weaker vessel in his first epistle. The amount of physical productivity expected from a woman was a bit more than half of that for a comparable male. Unless, of course, you're the Garretts, and then my wife works 10 times as much as I do. I just want to qualify that. But this is an average. The Lord is averaging things out for weaker people like me, okay? Anyway, this was the value set for a male or a female slave who had been gored by an ox in Exodus 21, verse 32. And guess what? It is also the value that the Lord Jesus Christ was priced at when Judas betrayed him to the chief priests. Verse 5, and if from 5 years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. The valuation set here is less than half that set for those between 20 and 60. This shows us that skill, knowledge, and ability are all factors which are considered. The age of 20 is when the congregation was considered acceptable for war, as the book of Numbers repeatedly states. Before that, those 19 and younger were still considered not ready for the challenges of adult life. In this one category, the value of the female is exactly one half of that of the male, rather than three-fifths, which we just saw, or two-thirds, which we will see. This indicates that the service of females at this age is not considered to be of the same proportion as at other ages, probably because of the issues that females especially face at these young ages. Verse 6, and if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. A child of such an age would be almost a liability as one who is considered for service. The prospects would be of a future worker only, and thus the price is very small for redemption value. Verse 7, and if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. The value of an elderly male is less than a male between 5 and 20. However, the value of an elderly woman is the same as a female between 5 and 20. Thus, her proportional value is greater at this age than at the younger age. During the Second Temple period, they had a proverb concerning this. An old man in the house is always in the way. An old woman in the house is a treasure. She manages all household affairs. Verse 8. But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest. And the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed. The priest shall value him. This verse contains the last use of the word muk, or poor, in the entire Bible. Goodbye to muk. It signifies someone who has become thin and thus figuratively to be impoverished. Scholars point to this verse and say that this entire section on vows presupposes redemption of the individual, and this is a ceremonial rite, not an actual vow to service. Otherwise, the person would be obligated to service to the Lord. But I would argue exactly the opposite. Their logic must be that they consider such a vow as permanent. But nothing here says it is. The Nazarite vows of Numbers 6 are made for <coughs> amounts of time chosen by the one vowing. If a person vowed to serve the Lord, a price for redemption from that service is set. If it is not paid, the service continues. As I said, it's forever in the Lord's service. But a person may be so poor that he simply wanted to serve the Lord for a specified amount of time. I don't have a lot of money. I'm going to get my land back at the year of Jubilee. Think of it that way. Everybody got that? And then he's going to have land again, and he can sell stuff, and he can get himself out of his box. 
He could then appeal to the priest for a reduction in his redemption value with the intent of paying his redemption fee when things looked up for him. He is offering himself as a gift of service to the Lord, but doing it from a position of poverty. Paul repeats the sentiment in 2 Corinthians. He says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Paul is saying that the disposition of the individual is what makes an offering acceptable or not, regardless of the size of the gift. If one eagerly and with a right heart gives just 30 cents, they are doing well. However, if someone gives $1 million with the wrong intent, why would they be credited with an acceptable gift? The world focuses on the size of the gift, but God focuses on the intent behind it. Jesus speaks out about the woman with the two small copper coins, and that is exactly what he's talking about there. Understanding this, we can see that a gift is based on the heart of the giver, and it is according, as Paul says, to what one has. The poor man with little can give a grand gift. It is accepted then not according to what he does not have. If it was, then only the gifts of the wealthy would be acceptable, regardless of the amount given in comparison to the amount they possess. This precept appears to be what is being relayed by the Lord here. A person who consecrated himself by oath to serve the Lord should not be prohibited from doing so because he was too poor. Rather, he should be given a chance to do so and then be able to redeem himself based on his state of poverty. If this were merely a way of giving a gift to the Lord, there would be no need at all to make a vow of consecration. There are other things that could be vowed to the Lord as we will next see. Verse 9. If it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. These words now refer to any animal that was considered as an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. As already detailed within the law, we have bulls, goats, rams, lambs, and so on. Any such animal that was brought to the Lord became holy. This means that it was henceforward set apart for sacred use, either for sacrifice on the altar or for the maintenance of the priests and the sanctuary. It could also be put with the animals intended for later sacrifice. Verse 10, he shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. Now, I start typing these at 4 o'clock in the morning, right? We, I was up to 7 o'clock a while ago, and my head was hurting at verse 3. We're at verse 10, and I'm just going, you know, mind bonkers by about 9 o'clock. It's very difficult, some of these things. It's easy once it's explained, but to try to think, why did the Lord put this in there? And there aren't many commentaries on these things. It's rather complicated. So let me read that again. Verse 10, he shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. Anything which had been consecrated to the Lord as an offering became at that moment holy. Thus it belonged to the Lord for sacred purposes. Adam Clark notes that to change, which was impiety, to withhold it, sacrilege. A new word, moor, is brought into the Bible to make the point. It means essentially the same thing as the other verb. Both convey the idea of changing one for another. By using two words, it is giving an emphasis that this would be wholly unacceptable. Further, it might be inferred that one verb is speaking of exchanging one animal for another like animal, whereas the other verb would then mean one animal for a different kind. This seems right because verse 10 continues, and if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall become holy. 
one might ask, why would someone want to exchange what they have vowed? The reason might be that at first he had promised a lamb and decided that he had a better lamb. Or he might have vowed a lamb and decided that he would give an ox as a better gift. In making such a change or exchange, both animals became holy. On the other side, the person may have devoted an ox and then his other ox died. He may say, I need an ox, so I'm going to exchange it for a lamb. If he decided to do this, then both animals were holy. He would not receive back his lamb, and he would not receive back the ox either. The lesson is, one must always be careful when making vows. That's the whole point of what I read you as our text verse and then repeat it again. You're under no obligation to do this thing. But once you open your mouth and speak, you are now under obligation. Verse 11, if it is an unclean animal which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest. There are two possibilities as to what this means. The first is an unclean animal according to sacrificial law, like a donkey. The second is a clean animal with a defect. The first is probably the case, but either way, it is to be presented to the priest. Verse 12, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. It's an obvious verse. The quality of the animal is set by the priest, and from that determination, a price is then set. Verse 13, but if he wants it all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. The animal's price was set at a certain amount, and it is for that amount that it could be sold to another, but the one who brought it forward originally would have to pay one-fifth more for it than anyone else. This was intended to avoid people making rash vows. There would be a penalty imposed for having so dedicated and then decided to have again what was dedicated. But Dad... That was my favorite horse. You see what's going on here? You've made a vow, and now you find out that you don't want to, and so you want to buy it back. Any of these animals can be bought back is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, that's what it says. But if you buy it back, if you are the person that vowed it, you have to pay more for it. Another person can buy it at the set value. Now, the reason why they would do this is I have an animal I want to give to the temple. The temple needs money to keep running. So they have this big farm full of animals, and if somebody wants to come and buy one, they say, well, that was vowed for this much money, and now we're going to sell it to you, and that way they can have revenue coming in. So that's what's going on with all of these verses. But once the vow is made, it must be held inviolable. And if you want it back, now you have to pay more. The temple gets more, and you get back your son's favorite horse at a loss. Everybody got that. Okay, verse 14. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it. Whether it is good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. This is probably pertaining to a house in a city. It is not that which is granted by original inheritance of the land. One commentary says that the ordinary practice here is to redeem. That makes no sense. Like the animals of verse 12, if one were to redeem his own house, he'd be penalized for doing so. Verse 15, if he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the value of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. The same penalty for the redemption of an unclean animal is found here. It would make no sense for the usual practice to be the redeeming of the property by the original owner. Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. This speaks of land of original inheritance. It belongs to the family and tribe forever. And so only the produce could be dedicated. 
the amount is set based on either how much barley seed the land would require to seed it or how much the land was expected to produce. It is debated which is correct, probably for sowing. After that, though, then a set value of silver for the amount of seed was set. Verse 17, if he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. This would be land dedicated immediately after the Jubilee. In such a case, the full valuation applied. This then covered 49 years. Verse 18, but if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. This speaks of the years remaining until the next Jubilee. A standard calculation was to be made based on the number of years left, and then the amount of corresponding seed was then to be converted into silver, and that would be the set value. Verse 19, and if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. Again, the same one-fifth penalty is imposed upon anyone who desired to receive back his vowed offering. It would be a lesson that would be remembered by the one who vowed and then reconsidered. Verse 20, but if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. This is an exceedingly complicated verse. I probably started it at 927 and ended evaluating it at 1145 or something. What it probably means is that the man has done one of two things. He, one, vowed the land which he owns as an offering to the Lord, and he has not redeemed it before the Jubilee. Or two, he has sold the land to someone else and decided after selling it that he vowed that it should be the Lord's. Remember, it's supposed to come back to him. Okay, as the land is his in perpetuity by landed inheritance, it should revert back to him. But because he vowed it to the Lord after selling it, then his intention is that it should not revert to him, but to the Lord. Either way, he is making an absolute claim that he wished the land to be the Lord's forever, which will now happen. Verse 21, but the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. The intent of the man with his landed inheritance was that it would forever be the Lord's. It would never return to the land of the tribe from which he came. We might think this odd. Is anybody thinking that odd? Until we see what people do with land they once possessed, giving it to the state or the county in which they live as a memorial park or an arboretum. Now, how do I know this? Because I have a father that owned all kinds of land up in Massachusetts, and he had the nicest piece of property on the entire mountain where he goes every year. It's right next to the church, and the church is the very center of the town. And he owned five acres right there, and he said, I'm going to make an arboretum out of this. And he had all of the trees taken out. It was a field. He did all this work himself. That's what I used to do year after year for a week. I would go up there, and I would take out these stones, giant stones. You see a little stone, you got to get it out because it'll ruin the lawnmower blade, right? Well, guess what? The frost heaved up a stone as big as a desk, and I'd be there all day taking that stone out. Trees, stumps have to be taken out. He planted trees from all over the world. All over the world. He's got Korean dogwoods and Japanese this is and, and New Zealand. It is beautiful. And then he took it out of our inheritance, meaning my brothers and I, and he gave it to the, the city or the, uh, the town, the township. And that is theirs forever. This is what's going on here. You read these verses and you say, it doesn't make any sense. My father loves that town. It's where he grew up. His heart is there. 
it's a piece of property that is of no value to anybody except a house right next to a church, and they don't believe in anything up there anymore, right? And so we're just going to make something beautiful out of it, and it is beautiful. At different times of the year, different things bloom. It's marvelous. I'm telling you all this just so you get appreciation for what is going on here because these verses are tiring, and you're reading me and you think, what is going on here? The answer is that the Lord is trying to take care of people's vows, and he's trying to do it in a manner where they will not violate their vows, but at the same time, if they want to, they have to pay for it, okay? That's what's going on here. It is taking the land out of the family's possession, and it is taking out of the possession of anyone else as well. Thus, it becomes a testimony of love to the one who is parted with it. Verse 22, and if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, this would be landed property purchased by someone from its permanent owner, as is described in chapter 25. We went through that in detail. The individual has not actually bought the land, but the crops, the yield of the land. Verse 23, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee. He shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. The priest was to then make an evaluation of the seed of the land, which would occur until the year of Jubilee. And when that amount was set... The one vowing was to give the money to the priest for the care and the maintenance of the sanctuary. But no one-fifth would be added to it as it is not his landed property to be redeemed. And so only the money of the vow could ever be exchanged. We're up to 1245 and I've got a giant headache as I'm trying to figure these things out. Verse 24, in the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought to the one who owned the land as a possession. As it wasn't the buyer's actual property, he had no right to sell it or to have it transferred out of the possession of the landed owner. Thus, it went back to the landed owner at the Jubilee. Verse 25, and all your valuations shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel. The shekel is defined as 20 geras. It comes from garar, which means to drag away. The gera literally means a bean or a kernel, which is round as if scraped. Thus, it is a portion of a shekel which has been taken away. And we use this exact same idea in our language today with the word grain when speaking of money, gunpowder, and so on. The reason for including this statement is to ensure that the shekel sanctuary, I got through that. All week I've been saying shekel, I've not been able to pronounce, I made it, which was the standard was to be used. And the silver was to be according to that 20 gera standard. The number 20 in scripture signifies expectancy. There was always to be the expectancy that the shekel used was appropriate to the standard. You are not to use a faulty shekel. You are not to use faulty weights and instruments. You are to be fair in dealing with your fellow man. Verse 26, but the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate. Whether it is an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. Exodus 13 verse 2 expressly stated that all firstborn belonged to the Lord. Because of this, they could not be used as a vow of offering. They were already his to begin with. A firstborn man could be vowed, though, because they were redeemed when the Lord took the Levites as his in place of the firstborn. Now, we could think of Samuel fitting into this category, but guess what? Samuel was not the firstborn of the father. He was the firstborn of the mother. And so we don't want to include that in there, but it's the same principle that's going on. Verse 27, and if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation. 
and shall add one-fifth to it, or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. The subject of this verse is very hard to pin down. Is it a clean animal with a defect that cannot be presented to the Lord? Is it an unclean animal according to sacrificial laws? Is it even still speaking of the firstborn of animals referred to in verse 26? It's already been prescribed in Exodus 13 that the firstborn of a donkey was to be redeemed with a lamb or have its neck broken. Does that principle apply to all unclean beasts or to only donkeys? Probably this is speaking of the firstborn of an unclean animal other than a donkey. But being dogmatic here, especially when dogs are unclean animals, is probably the wrong course of action. The price of a dog is forbidden to be brought to the house of the Lord for any vowed offering, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 18. I'm glad somebody got my pun. Thank you. I have spoken with my lips and made a vow. I shall not delay in keeping what I have said. To the sanctuary, I am heading there now. My heart was prompted, and so I shall go where my heart has led. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. This I shall do. The Lord will be pleased, so it shall certainly be. To the Lord I will be faithful and true. Following in the footsteps of Christ my Lord, who paid his vows to the Lord, those he had spoken, as the psalmist said in his sacred word, and like Jesus, my vows shall never be broken. Now, before I go on, once again, it's kind of odd that we have our missionaries here today, Ray and Just Willett, who are raising funds to get over to Papua New Guinea. If you're watching online and you didn't see the opening comments today, you want to make sure that you watch those so you can understand that we have people that need money. They're 41.8% of their uh, grand total before they can leave. They want to leave next January with their children and go to Papua New Guinea for the rest of their lives, devoting their lives to the service of the Lord. They've gone through great training, great study. It's been a very intense few years for them, and we need people to help them out. If you promise to help them out, if you make an oath or a vow, please keep that oath or vow. It is very, very important that you do this so that they are not left high and dry in the middle of the jungle in Papua New Guinea, and that they can pay for their children to grow up into mature adults and become missionaries of their own. But please remember that you need to make sure when you make a vow or an oath, you stick to it, and you don't harm, excuse me, the people that need it so desperately. Our second thought today, our final thought of the book of Leviticus, that which may not be vowed. It's verses 28 through 34, and we are almost done with this marvelous treasure called the book of Leviticus. Verse 28, nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. A new word with an awesome and terrifying meaning is introduced into scripture here, harem. The word is also translated as a net. The idea is that as a net closes and drags away its catch, as Solomon calls it, I think, in the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, maybe it's Proverbs, he says, it's a cruel net. It drags away its catch, so it is to be with someone devoted to the Lord. Cherem signifies something placed under a ban and devoted to destruction. A man had the right to devote anything under his possession to be dedicated to the Lord. He would do this with a curse upon himself if not obeyed. This included property, slaves, and even children. 
No reason is given and no further explanatory details come later. All we have is that if such a pronouncement was made, the thing could not be sold, it could not be redeemed. Instead, it became devoted and most holy to the Lord. For property and assets, they became solely the property of the priests. For people, verse 29, no person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. Those scholars attempt to separate the words of verse 29 from verse 28, it's hard to see how they can justify this. Verse 28 explicitly gives a person the power to declare a man under his possession, harem. Verse 29 immediately follows and says that all harem who are devoted as harem shall be put to death. As melancholy as the passage is, this verse seems to explain the intent of the account of Jephthah's daughter in Judges chapter 11 and it shows the severity of speaking rashly. Though that was a vow and not a harem, the result was the same as if it was. Further, it shows the disobedience of Saul, who made a similar vow in 1 Samuel chapter 14, which his son was implicated in, Jonathan, and which he did not carry out. Verse 30, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. We're probably about four o'clock by now, and I am really struggling with these. Uh, it, it was a long day, but aren't these marvelous verses? Are you learning something really interesting? Everything which came from the agricultural work of the people was to have a tithe or a tenth portion of it removed. This was to be considered holy to the Lord. At this point, what this means is not explained, but that is coming later in the law, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 12 through 14. For now, one-tenth of the land's produce was considered as holy. Verse 31, if a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. Now, you might ask, why would you want to redeem your tithes? Well, I'm going to explain the process here in a minute, but you have an animal that you want. Your son, it's your son's favorite animal. And so you want to buy it back instead of having it as a tithe, then you would do something like this, okay? There are always reasons. I'm not going to give you all of them, but I want you to think these things through. The tithes were excluded from vows because they already belong to the Lord, but they could be redeemed by adding a fifth of the value to them. Verse 32, and concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. What this means is explained in more detail later. But for now, the animals would pass under a rod. As each passed, it would be counted. Each tenth would be set aside as Kodesh Le Yehovah, or holy to the Lord. That animal could not be sold or kept for working or for anything else. It was set apart to the Lord. If you have the notes that I gave you earlier in the week, you've got to put an L in there because it's Kodesh Le Yehovah, holy to the Lord. Sorry, I added that in later when I realized I left off the word too. Anyway, verse 33, he shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. When the tenth animal passed under the rod, its fate was sealed. It was not to be exchanged for a better or worse animal. If an exchange was attempted, then both were to be considered holy. What can be inferred from the words, it shall not be redeemed, is that they could neither be bought nor sold. They were set to be dedicated to the Lord, and that was their purpose henceforth. As an additional note, the tithe will continue to be explained and will be defined after this point and throughout the law. Some scholars will point to those clarifications with their deceitful hearts 
and they will call them second tithes or even third tithes. There is no such thing in scripture as a second tithe or a third tithe. There is one tithe and it is handled and it is further explained later. Don't believe people that say that thing. The subject of tithing is one of the most misunderstood and it is one of the most abused principles in the church. The tithe or tenth is a precept found in the law. It is never repeated under the new covenant. Further, what is done with the tithes, even under the Mosaic covenant, is wholly ignored by almost all preachers. This precept, now named here, is the first time that tithing is mandated under the law. Two other times, the setting aside of tenths are mentioned before this. Both are descriptive passages. They mandate nothing. One of them was when Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek. The second is when Jacob vowed before going off to Padan Aram, I vow 10% if you bring me back safely to my land. Those are descriptive passages. They mandate nothing. Some, however, with their deceitful hearts, will point to those two passages and claim that because they precede the law, the tithe is an eternal standard for man. They claim, that, why would they do that? Because they know what the law says, and they want to get around what the law says, which will be in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. I'll tell you really quickly, it says give away one-third, one year of your three years of tithe. The other two years you eat yourself. I won't get into detail in that now. But they know what it says. They don't want to go by what it says, so they defer to something that isn't even true. They claim that it falls under the law of first mention meaning that something mentioned for the first time is to be upheld after that. There is no such law in Scripture. If there were, anyone could have multiple wives and concubines forever. We would have to marry our oldest daughters off before our younger ones could get married. And if our son died, we would be giving his widow to our next son to raise up children in the first son's name. Try that in America today, right? We would be paying dowries for our wives, giving our firstborn a double portion of the inheritance, observing the weekly Sabbath and the seventh year Sabbath. We would also be observing those pilgrim feasts mentioned in Exodus on and on and on and on it would go. It is untrue. Do not be deceived by these people that have greedy hearts and that do not want to simply and frankly speak what the Bible says about giving. Understand now that the tithe is not a New Testament principle. And even when preachers teach tithing, they do not do it according to the standard of the law. Remember this one simple rule. No tithing. There is one precept in the New Testament for giving, and that is to give as one may prosper. That is it. Out of that prospering, Paul then says to share in all good things with the one who teaches you. Okay, that's it. That's your only instructions for giving in the entire Bible. And if you make a vow to help out Ray and Jess Willett, keep your vow. They need that money and they need to get over there before these people perish without hearing the word of Jesus Christ. Okay, this all of these principles are so important and we're looking at this chapter of Leviticus and we just pass through it so quickly and we don't pay attention to the fact that God really wants us to understand what is in his word. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, as important of a passage as we have had in all 27 chapters of Leviticus. Verse 34 is our final verse of the chapter. It is our final verse of the book of Leviticus and I'm going to miss this book. I'll never preach on it again as long as I live. I may teach on it, but this is the last time I will ever preach out of the book of Leviticus, and it has been a real honor to do it with all of you. I want you to know that. We've gone every single verse of this book together. 
and it means a lot to me that you've stuck it through because I said at the beginning, I know a lot of people aren't going to stay, and we've actually grown since then. Do you know what day you started? I do not d know what day we started. 4 2 17. 4 2 17. So it's, uh, it's a little more than a year. We had two, uh, we had a Christmas and an Easter sermon, so it's almost exactly one year, and this is our 51st Leviticus sermon. Verse 34 says, These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. The words here simply and elegantly close out the book of Leviticus. They immediately speak of the contents of this chapter, but they are an overall summary of the entire book. And though this chapter has lacked much of the Christological symbolism that most of the book of Leviticus has shown us, it is an important ending to the book. Without it, there would have been a void in several important aspects of the lives of the Israelites. What would be the result of making vows? What would have been the consequences for reneging on those made? Who was to be the deciding voice in such things? And so on. It was necessary to put these things here to ensure a smooth transition out of the book of Leviticus. Further, though its placement is often called a mistake, it is more than appropriate. Rather than closing out the general synodic laws, which included the blessings and curses, it ended on a more positive note of what could and could not be vowed to the Lord. And finally, things like the tithe are spoken of here, but what to do with them is not yet revealed. Thus, it gives an anticipatory taste that more is to come before all is complete in regards to such things. In all, the chapter serves as a marvelous conclusion to the book of Leviticus. Before we close out the chapter, though, because we are dealing with vows, it is right that we tie this into a passage from Mark chapter 7. There we read the following words of Jesus our Lord to the Pharisees. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. Have you read that passage and wondered what he's talking about? Yeah. I'm going to tell you. The word he uses, korban, is found in Leviticus 27, verse 9. Do you think that we heard that today? Yes. So that's why I'm tying this in here. It's an offering to the Lord. What the people were doing was getting around the law of tending to their parents by taking what should have been used for their care and making it a korban or an offering to the Lord. By doing this, it meant that it could not be used for any other purpose. And the parents would rather do anything, even perishing, than to interfere with such an offering and rob God. Everybody got this so far? Eventually, the person could reclaim their offering. How would they do that? It's their offering. They can, by adding one-fifth to the value. That's exactly right. Thus, instead of tending to the parents with a great portion of the asset, they might spend all of their money taking care of poor sick mom or poor sick dad. They would supposedly be honoring God. The one-fifth value would be a minimal loss compared to spending it all on their care. The priests would profit off of the deal in the process, and all would be okay with the world. But Jesus knew their deceit, and he laid it out for all to see and to understand. The law was intended to bless the people, to protect the poor and needy, and to glorify God all at the same time. And if you've got old parents, the way you glorify God is by tending to them, because guess what they did for you? When you were little baby, throwing up in their face and doing all the things that babies do, right? Now it's your turn. This is what is going on here. 
the law was never intended to be used as the leaders of Israel did. They manipulated its precepts for gain, and they harmed the people in the process, both in the hardening of their hearts and in the mistreatment of those who should have been cared for. As we continue through the law, we can see where it constantly failed to do what it was given to do, which is one, to sanctify the people, the very heart of the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, verse 44, you shall be holy for I am holy, and two, to grant them life, the second beating heart of the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. The people failed to be sanctified, and the people died. Leviticus shows us that something more was needed than the law itself. This beautiful, marvelous treasure of 27 chapters was given to lead us to a better understanding that we need Jesus. Thank you. And so before we depart today, getting ready for a new adventure and another new book of the Bible next week. Does anybody know where we're going? No. no, you don't. Let me tell you about Jesus and how he is so very important to your life. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled this massive, burdensome law that we cannot fill, not even a little bit of it. Because the Lord, how many times did I say today, the Lord is reading your hearts? He's reading our hearts. He knows every wicked thing that we think. And even if we say, I'm going to do this thing and I don't do it, guess what? You've done it, according to him. He reads our hearts and minds. Intent is as good as execution, even if you don't do it. We have all failed and we have all violated the law. Way back in the 59th book of the Bible, James, it says that if you violate one precept of the law, you've broken the entire law. Doesn't matter if you told a single white lie. No difference between a white lie and a black lie to God. They're all lies. But if you told one lie, you might as well have killed somebody. Everybody got that? We've broken the law. Every single one of us. And plus, even worse, John uh, 3 verse 18 says we're condemned already. We were condemned the moment that we were conceived in our mother's womb. The day we came out of our mother's womb and were born into this world, we were already on the highway to heck. But Jesus Christ came to resolve that. He came to resolve it by being born of a woman, but not of a man. He didn't receive the inherited sin of Adam. And he lived the perfect life under this law, this burdensome law that we have looked at and we will continue to look at, which actually, I told you this during one of the sermons, it actually scares me when I read it. And that's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to say, look at how fallen you are. You need something else. Every time I read it in the book of Ezekiel as well, I, I just get fearful. But Jesus Christ took all of that law and he did it perfectly in our place. And then he took all of the wrath that God has for our violation of it upon himself. And he gave up his life on the cross of Calvary for our sins. I don't know how anybody in this room can shut up about Jesus Christ. I don't know how you can do it. If you don't hand out a track when you're at dinner, grab them and hand them out. If you don't tell people about Jesus, tell people about Jesus. I don't know how we can do it when he has done this for us. And he's given us this marvelous treasure to show us our state in comparison to his. Glory of glories is the Lord God Almighty. Please, if you've never called on Jesus Christ, make today the day. We might not get to the next book of the Bible, which is... Oh, you've got to wait a minute. How did you know? Oh, because I gave it to you. I meant to cut that out of there. Our closing verse is from Psalm 66. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Oh, God, get me out of this, and I'll be your servant forever. I'll go to church more than Christmas and Easter. Well, then you'd better do it, 
You better do it because you are to perform your vows to the Lord. Old Testament and new, this precept will never change. If we speak, let our word be. Okay? Next week is Esther 1, verses 1 through 12. It's a great book of the Bible if you've never done it. Okay? I will tell you this. I'm going to give you this as the lead-in to the Esther sermons is that I had a couple books I wanted to do. And I went to Sergio and Rhoda and I asked them, what should you do? And I said, oh, I, you know, okay. Because I got down to just two by then and I, I was waiting for them to finally give me an answer and they didn't. And so I defaulted to my friends and we're doing Esther. And it's better because I'll explain why when, when I give the uh, opening comments to next week's sermon. But Esther 1, 1 through 12, really something to see and yet quite sad. It's entitled Naughty Vashti, A Party Gone Bad. That'll be our first Esther sermon. And I have something to tell you, which is the last time I'm ever going to tell you this in my life. I'm never going to tell you this again. Okay, so listen carefully. Pay heed. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? The reason why I'm never going to tell you that again is because I modify what I say for every book of the Bible. And that is for specifically for the book of Leviticus. It's the lifetime of sin is heaped up behind you. Leviticus. But he can wash it away, right? So you're never going to hear those words from me again. Maybe something else if the Lord doesn't come first. Here's our one thing to remember. Actually, I've got two things for you to remember. I said one of them already. No Tithing, thank you. But here's something more pertinent to the, uh, to the chapter itself. In Christ, if you are going to vow, be sure it is acceptable first. If so, and you make it, keep your vow. Okay? That's your admonition for today. I have a very long poem for you. Get out your pillows. It's called Things Vowed and Devoted. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he was then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, then this is how. If your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to years old 60, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, so it shall be, then your valuations shall be shekels 30. And if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male, yes, for one of the men, shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, shekels 10. And if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female, your valuation shall be shekels of silver, three. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be for one of these men, 15 shekels, and for a female, shekels 10. But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, so he shall do, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed, the priest shall him value. If it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy according to this word. He shall not substitute it or exchange it. Good for bad or bad for good, such shall not be. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the exchanged one for it shall be holy. If it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest according to this word. 
Linda's got her eyes closed. She was taking me literally. And the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as seen plainly. And you, the priest, shall value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it according to my narration, then he shall add one-fifth to your valuation. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand, just as he does submit. If he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must one-fifth of the money add of your valuation to it, and it shall be his if that is what makes him glad. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, so he does do, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver, as I am now instructing you. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, yes, this land, according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation, so shall it be. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him as to you I submit. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold to another man the field, it shall not be redeemed any more. His rights to it he did yield. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord. Its common status has ceased. As a devoted field, it shall be the possession of the priest. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, it was not in his inherited plot, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee and he shall give you your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord, so shall it be. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him. Please understand from whom it was bought to the one who as a possession owned the land and all your valuations shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel as prescribed by me. But the firstborn of the animals, which the Lord's firstborn should be, no man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's, it belongs to me. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation as you set and shall add one fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. So the price shall be met. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote of all he has to the Lord, both man and beast or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed according to this word. Every devoted offering is to the Lord most holy. This is how it is and how it shall be. No person under the ban who may become doomed among men to destruction shall be redeemed, but surely shall be put to death according to this instruction. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. Please understand. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, so I submit, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. Yes, to the Lord your God. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Such shall not be. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchange for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. It is holy, so it shall be esteemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses and which we have heard for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. They are the commandments of the Lord. Lord God, Thank you for this wonderful book, Leviticus. What a marvel to have studied it. Into every detail possible, we took a look, 
And to you, our thanks and praise, we now submit. It's about 8 o'clock at night. I haven't got up from that chair <laughs> since 4 o'clock in the morning other than to go to the mall for about an hour. And I'm just dead. <laughs> Hallelujah to Christ our Lord. Hallelujah for Leviticus, a marvelous part of your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for this wonderful book that we have journeyed through. Thank you for the precepts it has laid down, the instructions it has given, and the freedom which is found in Jesus Christ to get us out of it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you have given us from the pictures of Christ and the sacrificial animals to pictures of Christ and the dietary laws to pictures of Christ in the feasts of the Lord and for every other of the countless pictures of Christ that we have seen. It is all about this beautiful person that came from heaven to live among us and to give his life for us. It's all about the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so in his precious name we pray, thanking you for this book. Amen. Amen.